Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The parents of Gabby Petito will face off against the parents of Brian Laundry in front of a jury. Gabby's parents, Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt, are suing, claiming Chris and Roberta Laundrie knew all along that their son murdered his 22-year-old fiancé. The trial is set to begin on August 14, 2023, at a Venice, Florida County courthouse. You may remember Gabby went missing in late August while traveling with Brian on a cross-country road trip. Her remains were found in Teton National Park in Wyoming on September 19th. An autopsy revealed she was killed by strangulation. After Gabby went missing, Laundry returned to his parents' home in Northport, Florida. On September 13th, he disappeared and his parents said he went hiking and they said that he never came back. On October 20th, Laundry's skeletal remains were found in Micahatchee Creek Environmental Park, also in Northport. Alongside him, a note claiming responsibility for killing Gabby. And now the Petito parents are going after the Laundry parents with damning allegations, among them that Brian Laundry told his parents he murdered Gabby on August 28th and were making arrangements for him to flee. The lawsuit saying, quote, while Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt were desperately searching for information concerning their daughter, Christopher Laundry and Roberta Laundry were keeping the whereabouts of Brian Laundry secret and it is believed we're making arrangements for him to leave the country. The lawsuit also alleges Roberta Laundrie blocked Gabby's mom's cell phone and Facebook when she repeatedly pleaded for information regarding the whereabouts of Gabby. The attorney for the Petito family has said publicly that the family is seeking $100,000 in damages, saying they suffered pain and mental anguish as a result of the willfulness and maliciousness of the Laundries. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell, and part two of my illuminating conversation with News Nation senior national correspondent, Brian Entin. Now, I think you're going to find this really interesting. So let's jump back in where we left off. But before we do, just a heads up, listener discretion is advised. We're talking about Gabby's case and the detail of it, and it may well be triggering. Without further ado, here's part two with Brian Entin. Another thought, just going back to Steve Bertolino, was, um, and I just listened to a, to your interview with him, actually, where he said that he doesn't regret anything that he has done, that the laundries, they have no regrets, which I found very peculiar, by the way, just given everything that, that's gone on. But he also said he referenced, he'd said this to you a number of times now, that he may share with you someday what Brian told him, what the conversations were between the two. Do you think that will ever happen? Do you think that's a sincere and authentic thing to say? I think it could. He's been outspoken in many ways. I mean, 
listen, it wouldn't surprise me at some point. Maybe I think they're concerned now about the civil trial. I mean, I I really think he believed this was not going to happen. And again, like I told you, almost everyone I would interview, even people who obviously were huge supporters of the Petito family would say like, you know, I want this for them, but I don't see this case moving forward. So I, I think he was probably shocked and the fact that he is now such an intimate part of this lawsuit, and that they even said that he would have been named in the lawsuit if he was a resident of Florida. So, like, I don't think he's going to give me or anyone all of that information while this lawsuit is now moving forward. But when it all settles, I could see the laundries perhaps eventually doing an interview or something. Um, you know, that wouldn't surprise me either. But I think now that the lawsuit is moving forward, it's obviously going to be in their best interest legally to just clamp down on everything. Yes. And I think the it was interesting also that I looked at the decision making for Judge Carroll regarding not necessarily this, the decision to move forward, but that the jury trial had already been scheduled for 2023. I think it was August 2023 prior to that hearing, which I thought was very curious. That kind of gave me an indicator that it was more likely going to go ahead, where having watched it all play out, and I don't know whether you watched it and listened to the legal arguments, I got a sense from the legal arguments that day, and even Pat Riley said, look, there is no duty for them to disclose what they knew at the time, but it is outrageous, the acts of what they did thereafter, but more so what they didn't do and this particular statement that Steve Bertolino made. And it revolved around that. But I really got the sense from the hearing that it may well be dismissed, particularly at the end argument. Uh, Matt Luca was it who made the end argument that it could create an avalanche of other cases coming forward. You know, and the questions that Judge Carroll asked, and they were very good questions, actually, of both sides. I felt that he might be leaning to to dismiss the case. And I'm, I have to say, I'm really pleased that he came back so quickly and has made the decision for it to proceed and move forward. Yeah, two things that I think will be interesting. One is if it goes all the way to a jury trial, which I kind of think it might because it doesn't seem to me like the petite, I mean, let's say the laundries offered some monetary settlement. Like, I don't think the laundries, first of all, have that much money. I don't know, but, you know, based on where they live and all of that. And number two, I don't think that's really what the Petitos are after here. Like, I think they probably want a trial. They want as much information to come out as possible, which would mean they'd want to go all the way to the end of a trial. The other thing that's interesting is that, and this kind of goes back to the legalese of it all, but in all of those arguments that you're referencing that we watched, the way that, that it's set up is they talk about this assuming that everything in the complaint is true for this phase of the process. So when they were arguing about whether or not to dismiss it, you assume that everything in the Petito's complaint is true. So they didn't have to explain or defend anything they had in the complaint about how they know that the laundries knew that Gabby Petito was dead. So they still haven't said how they know. So I think that's also going to be really interesting. I mean, they put that in black and white as fact. So there's something they have, whether it's text messages or something that we still don't, haven't seen. So even when that comes out, I think is going to be really, really fascinating. Yes. And that was within their lawsuit filing. You're right. And they had also not named specific FBI representatives, but they had named that they would be calling uh, representatives from the FBI and from the police specifically, and that they did 
have evidence. And of course, the motion to dismiss wasn't the, the time or place to adduce that evidence. So yes, I feel that there is something that they must know, must be certain of. And we know that they spent eight hours with the FBI when evidence was handed over to them and they, and Gabby's belongings, etc. So I wonder what information and evidence they had. And that's why I thought it was interesting that the FBI also handed over these letters two days after the hearing. I felt that that was probably a strategic decision by the FBI that they had done their bit handing things over at a time when a lawsuit was being debated of whether or a determination was going to be made about whether it was going to move forward or not. But of course, that wasn't part of the actual discussion two days before. And I felt that put them in an even stronger position, even though it wasn't a dis, you know, something that was discussed in the motion to dismiss. Yeah, no, I agree. And I also think, you know, obviously the FBI, and you would know this better than me based on what you do, but, you know, they went through all of this with a fine tooth comb, I'm sure, before closing the case. But there's this expert who I interview a lot named, he's actually the state attorney in Palm Beach County. His name's Dave Ehrenberg. And he knows a lot about this case and obviously knows a lot about the law. And last time I interviewed him, he brought up something interesting. You know, it is possible that stuff could come out during this civil process that would cause law enforcement to take another look at whether the laundries were involved, whether they were accessories, whether they, whatever. So just going back to when you were saying, oh, well, Steve Bertolino, do you think he'll eventually tell you what Brian told him? Like, I think that they're going to be very, very careful right now because I think it's a possibility that like a criminal investigation could be reopened. They're probably pretty worried right now. I would imagine so. I think that this lawsuit is very important, actually, and it may be shaking the tree and more evidence may well fall out of it, as I always say. Sometimes we don't know what else exists, but I do get the sense that Gabby's family do know and do have evidence that something very concerning exists, which leads them to believe that they knew. I'm briefly jumping in here, as I want you to hear the exact words of lawyer Dave Arenberg in the interview with Brian. Yeah, it certainly has. And if it's true that the laundries were going to help him leave the country, I mean, wouldn't that be a crime? Wouldn't they be arrested for that? If they knew that he indeed had committed a crime and killed Gabby and then tried to help him leave the country. Yeah, that could be accessory after the fact. And I do not expect that charge to be filed against Brian's parents. I think this is case closed. But if new information comes out as a result of this civil lawsuit, the feds may be interested in this case again. And let's be frank. I mean, and I, I have heard you say this too, and I've said it on Crime Analyst many times, that Gabby was going to marry into their family. She was living with the laundry. She was seen as a family member. And yet when Brian returns home on September the 1st, they ignore and don't take calls from Gabby's family when they're trying to find out where she is. And on the 2nd, that they lawyer up. Just the timing, and it's their right to lawyer up, but just the timing of it, it doesn't look good. None of it looks good for them. And other people have weighed up, well, if it were your son, and you would hate to be in that position ever, but if it were, would you not try and have a conversation with the other family? You wouldn't take steps actually not to speak to them 
and to do everything to avoid speaking to them. That part feels really disingenuous, you know, very concerning. Why would they do that if they genuinely had Gabby's welfare and were concerned about her? It doesn't make sense. No, and I think going back to like the first week that I was covering this in Northport, that was one of those moments where you realize like, okay, there's something very strange going on here. This isn't just going to be like a two or three day story when the Petitos had one of those initial press conferences and it came out that the laundries were ignoring them. And you said it, I mean, despite the fact that Gabby was going to be their daughter-in-law and lived with them for more than a year in their house and was so close to the family and the nieces and nephews. That was when it was like, okay, there's like something really strange here. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's more layers to this. And, and that was like one of the moments where if you just thought to yourself, like, this doesn't make sense. Yes. And I think that's a very, that was an interesting interview with Steve Bertolino more recently, where what would the laundry supposed to do? Well, normal folk would probably have gotten on the phone with Gabby's family and had a conversation at the very least. Yeah. That's he what gets makes- very defensive with that kind of stuff. Yeah. He's just very like, no, they weren't, what were they supposed to do? They weren't talking. And, you know, like you, like you said, I mean, he said he has no regrets. I mean, he, and in some ways, I mean, so far the laundries haven't been in legal trouble. I mean, they haven't been arrested. So some might argue, you know, he's done a good job from a legal perspective so far. But obviously now with this civil case, things could could change. Yes, I think that's about to be tested, actually, Brian, whether he did a good job or not, given that one of, you know, a statement that he made is one of the key aspects that will be discussed at that lawsuit and be determined. And was it, and this is one thing I've asked him, like, and was it worth it? Like, okay, you kept them out of jail by having them stay totally silent. But like, at the end of the day, like their reputation, I mean, I mean, I hate to say this, but like, sometimes I feel like they're the most hated family in America. I mean, their neighbors hate them. They can't leave their house. You know, they, was it worth it? Would it have been better to just have a little bit of legally speaking, maybe put yourself out there and be a little nervous, you might get in trouble, but at least you're saving your reputation somewhat, you know? But just to stay silent like that, it just made people so angry. Yes. And showing a lack of compassion, care and empathy for what Gabby, I mean, Gabby could may well have been alive at that time. No one knew, but the fact that they weren't conversing at all with her family. And I think what was also put out was they were doing what any other family would and should do. And when I heard that, I felt, no, that's not what I would do. That is absolutely not what I would do. And if you are going to stay silent, then you should remain silent. But they did not. And Steve Bertolino made that statement about hoping that Gabby would be reunited with her family, given that the search was ongoing. So much more, I believe, will come of that. And I think there was also a moment where Steve Bertolino said, well, remember, the Gabby Petito's family haven't reached out to the laundries, you know, with an olive branch sort of thing. And you said, well, hang on, I just want to stop you there. Let's remember that Gabby was murdered and her family, why would they reach out with any form of olive branch? And you set the context straight again. And I, I felt that he had completely missed the point in what he was saying. I think he just, he gets so, I like I said, that this is so personal to him and he gets so um, 
Like he forgets the bigger picture of this. You know, he gets so caught up in these legal arguments and it's like, are you forgetting that Gabby Petito is dead and that her parents have done absolutely nothing wrong and that their daughter was murdered? You know, like it's almost like he forgets just the basic reason we're even having the conversation because he gets so in the weeds of these legal arguments and the right to stay silent and all of that, you know? Yes, the legalese and the process can overtake and the tail wags the dog. And that's why it's so important to keep centering Gabby, that a young woman who we saw on police body-worn camera footage was incredibly distressed throughout a one-hour, 17-minute police stop. She was distressed at the start. She was still sobbing at the end. And there were moments there for intervention to assist her. And within, you know, the next two weeks, she's dead. And Gabby did nothing wrong. Her family did nothing wrong. And we must set that context straight because some might say, well, the laundry's lost a son, but hang on. Decisions were taken by him. They were decisions that he took as an adult. And Gabby, unfortunately, at times has been lost in this process. And admittedly, I've spent a lot of time looking at the police body-worn camera footage. I don't know if you can remember back to that time when the, the footage was released, but it just struck me when I watched it, when I first watched it, just how distressed Gabby was and that there were multiple officers there and they seemed to completely get the wrong end of the stick as to what was going on, even though many people have said, without being trained by someone like me, and I do train law enforcement and everybody on coercive control and domestic violence, but lots of people picked up that she really was the victim and that Brian Laundrie was much more manipulative and trying to control the officers and became sort of buddy-buddy with them, fist bumping and so on, and yet Gabby was still there crying and distressed. What do you remember about when when that was released and your reaction to it? Yeah, I remember that pretty well because I was outside the laundry's house when it was released. I think it was like in the afternoon and the video came out and I was watching it on my phone. And, you know, up until that point, the only real video we had was that initial YouTube video that Gabby had created where everything looked so perfect and they looked like the perfect couple. And, you know, it was this incredible road trip and her Instagram, everything looked so great. And so you had this vision of Brian and Gabby and you had this vision of Gabby being really happy. Like that was the only mental image you had. And then when you saw that, it was just like the total opposite. It was just like, oh my gosh, like there was so much more going on here um, that we kind of suspected, but now you were seeing it. And I remember like watching the video, there were two batches that came out. I think it was the second batch that came out. Like it was one of the only times I kind of felt like I mean, I was emotional throughout, but I tried to just stay in like work mode, you know, but like there's like a few things, I mean, like any job, the emotions break through once in a while, you just can't help it and you're tired. And I remember watching the video and just like really getting like angry that all of this had happened and that she was in that situation. And I remember even like I was doing a live stream talking about getting people, you know, his reaction, talking to people. And I remember thinking like, That was probably where I felt the closest to like, maybe I was going to cross a line and just get too personally involved in this, you know? So I remember just like, okay, like tonight I need to like get a good night's sleep because it was um, like for everybody following it closely. When those videos came out, it was like, it was really like, kind of like everything seemed like it shifted in that moment. Yes. And I I felt that way too. I wanted to reach through uh, the camera and hug Gabby and, and grab her and console her. And it, it's just so striking to me. I mean, I've broken it down literally minute by minute, 
just how the officers could misunderstand everything that's going on because they weren't asking the right questions, but they just accepted Brian's narrative. Irrespective of the two male witnesses who called to say independently that they'd seen Brian slapping Gabby and not once did they challenge his narrative, which is just incredible. Yeah. And and like the minute that video came out, people who have been in domestic violence relationships and situations um, were immediately identifying so many things in those videos that even, that I didn't notice and pointing them out like, and it was like, oh my gosh, once they would point them out, you would see it. And people who have been in those situations, like immediately identified with that video and knew exactly what was going on. Absolutely. I've heard from hundreds and and really that's what I do for all the training and talk people through what they're seeing and understanding. And once you see it, you will never unsee it. You will always see it going forward. And it may show up in different ways, but the immediate Gabby claiming responsibility and, oh, that was me and taking that responsibility and trying not to get Brian into trouble, classic signs and just how upset she was. I mean, when Officer Robbins gets her out the van, she is almost doubled over, can barely breathe because she's so distressed. Conversely, Brian is so relaxed and laughing and joking and, you know, just on the basis, if you knew nothing more about what was being said, you would be able to see who was really upset and who wasn't. And those indicators. Yeah. And even if they had decided that Brian was the victim and that Gabby was the perpetrator, which I think some legal experts were saying, you know, that legally that was the case based on some parts of the video. I wish, or if they had arrested Gabby, even you have to wonder, like, would the outcome have been totally different? Would she have had to call her parents? Would they have had to bond her out? Would the road trip would have been over? You know, if they had just done something. Yes. I mean, this is where law enforcement really need that training so that they really do clearly understand what's going on because they spent a lot of time with them. I mean, often law enforcement say we don't have the time to deal with domestic violence. We're so busy. We just go from call to call. But actually there were four officers there. Now, two of the body-worn cameras have been released and they were both Mohab um, City Police officers who were wearing them, Officer Robbins and Officer Pratt. But the National Parks Police Service never released theirs. Were, were you aware of that? That Melissa Hulls, who spent most of her time with Gabby, that's never been released. Yeah, we have tried. I went to her house. Uh, like Sometimes I push it a little far. I, I just can't help it. But I went to her, to the ranger's house like three times because we went to Moab and um, you're right. I mean, that's a big piece of the puzzle that's missing. And again, since it's federal government, since she's a parks, federal parks ranger, it goes back to that whole nightmare of trying to get stuff through freedom of information, which you may never get. But anyway, I went to her house a couple of times when we were in Moab trying to see if she would talk. You know, I think she was just nervous because you know, with her job and everything, they're not supposed to talk to the media. She did like one little interview in the beginning with a local paper, I think. But yeah, you're right. We've never seen that video, which would be really, really interesting. I think hers is probably most significant because she had that honest conversation and she understood that female victims most oftentimes feel more comfortable with other women. So I think there's something significant on that camera. And I also just want to ask you, I know I've kept you a little bit longer, but there's just a couple of other things that I'm curious about that, that I'd like to ask you about. In the timeline, there were some text messages that went back and forth between Brian and Gabby's phones when Gabby was missing. 
What do you know about that? And have they been released or will they ever be released? The text so you're messages? talking about text messages between Brian and Gabby. Between their phones, yes. Apparently in the time that Gabby was missing. Almost like stuff that Brian was trying to do to make it seem like she was still alive if the phones were ever found or something. Yes, to potentially deceive. Yeah, I've heard about that, but I, I haven't heard anything about what the specific messages are. Okay. I just wonder whether we may, through the lawsuit, ever see those as well, because there's still key missing parts to this story. And I think that given the fact that Gabby was brutally murdered and given the fact that Brian is dead, for me, yes, there's a lawsuit, but it still feels like very significant things are yet to be learned. And those messages, I think, are significant. I also feel that there were certain aspects to do with Gabby's social media. The last five posts may not have been her posting. It seemed to be some posts that looked much more like Brian's style of writing. I don't know whether you looked at the social media, given that their lives were kind of seen through that portal, whether you um, analysed and compared either of their, their social media against each other and with, with the letter. Yeah, I did a little bit. And again, it wouldn't surprise me if he was um, doing that. I think what's going to be the most interesting now, though, just to go back to the laundries, is like, what was he telling his parents during all of that time? You know, was he coming up with all of this on his own in terms of, I'm going to drive back and this, I'm going to post, you know, on social media, or I'm going to send text messages between the phones? Did he keep it this big secret or? You know, did he start communicating with his parents and break down and say, this is what happened and I don't know what to do, you know? I think yes. that's the part that's really still like a, a real mystery. Yes, and that's really where I was coming back to full circle to where we started off with Mr. Bertolino's strategy. And I feel that there may well have been a strategy. Was this just Brian out on his own doing these things, as in... He takes a decision to leave Gabby. He fills the van up with using Gabby's card. He then drives all the way across country. It's a long time, isn't it, for him to think about things and be left to his own devices. Had he already communicated with his family? He gets back on September the 1st. September 2nd, Steve Bertolino is on retainer. And we know text messages were sent from Gabby's phone, at least two, to Nicole Schmidt, which Nicole didn't think were Gabby, again, potentially to mislead. So was that Brian making those decisions on his own or was there a strategy? And I don't know if, if you have a view on that. I personally feel it's an interesting thing, that this matter of transparency that Steve Bertolino alluded to. And it just seems the very opposite was going on potentially behind the scenes, even though he said, oh, I may have the conversation with you one day, Brian, about what Brian and I were talking about. Yeah. And he has said before that, you know, the family would put him on speakerphone when he was consulting them during that time. But there were conversations that he would have just with Brian uh, without the parents too. So when you keep using the word strategy, I mean, I think there was a bit of a strategy here in terms of what the laundries knew or didn't know. I don't know. But again, if, if you're the laundries and your son comes home and your future daughter-in-law is missing, who you loved very much, and now you've got a lawyer involved and the lawyer is having some private conversations with your son, but then some conversations with you. I mean, the whole thing is very odd, obviously. Extremely odd. 
And obviously we have to remember that it's what Brian was saying to potentially his parents and to Steve Bertolino. It's still one narrative, isn't it? We're not going to know from Gabby's perspective what went on because her voice has been taken as was her life brutally taken. And that was Brian's decision. And the, the last point I want to make was that Brian did leave after that van stop, that police van stop. He did leave the road trip, the van life trip with Gabby, and he went back home to his family and Gabby was in a hotel. What did you make of that in the timeline? What was your interpretation that he leaves and he says he doesn't have any money to go to a hotel when the police stop him? And they're saying that, could he not go to a hotel for that night? And he said, no, they have little money. And yet within days, he takes a flight back to Florida apparently because he needed to move some things out of storage, which must have cost money. Gabby was in a hotel, which must have cost money. Right. And he had money. We later learned through the parents uh, filing for the estate and stuff that he had money and savings that they were using for this trip. At first, when this was all unfolding in real time, the thought was, well, was Gabby already dead during that time? But we, we later knew that wasn't the case. And then the sister said that she had a FaceTime call with Gabby in the hotel. So that sort of confirmed that that she was alive. But yeah, I mean, perhaps they were fighting and he said, I'm getting out of here for a couple of days. Um, maybe he really was moving things. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's very strange that they would spend the money for Gabby to be in a hotel near the airport there. I mean, really to stay in the hotel that long, she could have probably bought a plane ticket too and just come with him and they could have parked the van. So I'm sure there's more to that that we don't know. Yes, it just seems very strange. And I was interested just to hear you say that he did have money, as I've just covered aspects talking about when he specifically says, what little money we have, we share. And it seemed that she was funding the road trip because she had jobs before they went and he seemed to not be working. But you say that he did have money in a savings account. And Yeah, I can't remember the exact amount off the top of my head, but through the court paperwork, when the parents were filing to get control of his estate, there was a certain amount of money in a bank account. It was like thousands of dollars. So yeah, there, there, was, there was definitely some money. And again, that just seems very strange given that he used her Capital One card to fill the van up, $1,000 plus. Then was that again a strategic move to make it look like she was still alive? Or was it just the case he wanted to use her money rather than his? Right. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I don't or or was he just, you know, was he not that smart and just used her card? You know what I mean? Like what did he just make a mistake in terms of trying to cover things up? Yes. I mean, he's not somebody who is criminally sophisticated, but I still get the sense that what he was trying to do were they were intentional decisions to deceive. And he may not have had it all planned out or all thought out. But some of the steps he took clearly showed that he was trying to manipulate and deceive. And admittedly, I can't help but feel he was emboldened by law enforcement or taking his side just by him telling them a narrative that they all got behind and believed. And it seemed to be so easy for them to believe him and leave Gabby to go off into a into the night on her own in a van when she's still clearly very upset. And he's the one laughing and joking in the back of a police cruiser being chauffeur driven to a hotel paid for by a women's shelter. It's just so <laughs> nonsensical, the whole thing. You just have to hope. And that's what I've hoped with this story from the beginning is that Gabby's story will 
help other situations. I mean, even you bring up the law enforcement situation, hopefully, you know, this, that video was seen so far and wide, hopefully other smaller police departments, you know, the officers saw the video, thought about it. I interviewed the Moab police chief and, you know, I think those officers, actually, I know those officers are, are, and were really, really torn up about this. You know, I think it it does just come down to a lack of training. They obviously didn't know that this was going to end the way it did. So I hope that this whole saga, that there's a greater good that comes out of it beyond just the laundries and and Gabby Petito. But, you know, there is awareness for domestic violence and for the way police should handle situations and for all of that. And I, I think that's probably what the Petitos want. And I think that's probably their end game too. Well, I hope so. And that's why I've been carefully deconstructing it frame by frame of that police stop, because it will be used in police training. And we have to get it right. That's what I always say to law enforcement. You know, when four to five women are murdered every day in the US by a current or former male partner, we have to go into those situations knowing that. We have to ask the right questions. And training is absolutely critical by experts and specialists, and particularly around coercive control, the non-physical things. Because what I heard officers who, they kept talking about physical, and they weren't thinking that domestic abuse is a power and control crime. It's about actually more often than not non-physical things. And that's why I've been busy changing laws in the UK, Australia, on coercive control and here, because everything about Gabby's case was to do with control. He coercively controlled her and she felt she needed him. You know, everything he said, her little website, everything was about devaluing. And she felt that she needed him when she was very capable and doing things for herself. And we have to think about that, our law enforcement media reporters as well. When R. Kelly was interviewed and a number of the women that he had held captive through invisible chains in his property, many law enforcement officers said, well, there were no physical signs of abuse, no broken bones, no bruises. And we have to, it's 2021, get beyond that and look for the non-physical. So I hope those officers, and I do hope Moab City Police Department take it very seriously in the sense of there's a lot of learning that has to come out of Gabby's case. And that is really important for us to have difficult conversations about. So I'm very glad that we've had this conversation. I know I could talk to you much more, but I'm just conscious and respectful of your time. So if there's, is there anything that we haven't covered that were standout moments or things that you want to make mention of before we wrap? No, I think we covered it all pretty well. Thank you for having me on. And again, I just hope, you know, beyond just, obviously there's a lot of interest in in the lawsuit and I'll continue to cover it all, but I just hope that, um, what you said about, you know, police departments training, people being more aware of domestic violence. I mean, even for me, you know, I didn't cover a lot of stories like this and I've learned a lot. So I hope that that can be Gabby's legacy because I think that would be a really uh, incredible thing. I agree. She wanted to be an influencer and now she is influencing hopefully millions to understand what went on and with the Gabby Petito Foundation too. And I'm 100% committed to that. That's why I take these very thorough, deep dives, even now going back through everything to do with Gabby's case to understand the lessons to and the opportunities for intervention and prevention. But we can only do that, Brian, if we're honest. And that also is a very important part of being honest and authentic. And for law enforcement, that when you get things wrong, being honest about it, and ensuring that you get the right training. And that for me is police leaders 
you know, investing in their staff and investing in that training and not turning around saying, well, there's nothing that we could do about it. You know, it just happens because women's lives and children's lives, they matter and we have to get better. So I value you and appreciate you. And I will no doubt be watching uh, with interest as you cover the case going forward. And I'm very interested to see. One last thing I did think of also, in addition to domestic violence, just um, how many missing people there are. That's another thing. I mean, I did a few missing stories here and there, but I didn't realize there are people missing every single day that don't really get any attention. The police do not take it seriously. They don't have the resources. Families go in and know that something is wrong, just like Gabby's mom did. And they kind of get the runaround. Oh, well, come back in a week or fill out this form. And, you know, a lot of kids run away. And like with Gabby's mom, you know, these parents innately know, like, no, my daughter wouldn't just disappear. We've been doing this missing segment every week on News Nation that came from us covering Gabby Petito's story. You know, tr- there's so many. I mean, doing one a week is just, <laughs> we hope we're helping, but I wish we could do more. That's just another thing I hope people will take from this whole story is paying more attention to when people do go missing and taking it seriously. Absolutely. And missing and murdered Indigenous women. We know, you know, people of colour who receive less attention, and particularly in Wyoming, where 18% of the cases where women were missing, only 18% received any form of media attention at all. So that, again, is part of Gabby's legacy, isn't it? And I thought Joe Petito was very humble in saying all these cases should get the same amount of attention as Gabby's case. And that also needs to change in law enforcement and the media. So I'm very grateful to News Nation for flagging missing cases because we know that social media does work. We know that it can be very effective as a tool in terms of information and finding people hopefully alive, but also resolving cases when they're not. Yeah. And Joe Petito said this once, can you imagine if like Kim Kardashian would just retweet a missing person even once every couple of days. I mean, these people have the following. It doesn't take much. And you've got families just like desperate to get, you know, photos out there. So hopefully that's something else that will also come from Gabby's story. Absolutely. It's a it's a huge legacy. Um, I'm sure, you know, we all feel we would much rather that Gabby was still alive, but it is a big legacy. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for your time. I really appreciate you walking me through Gabby's case. And of course, it's ongoing. It's ongoing for her family. It's ongoing for you and I. It's an ongoing lawsuit. So I know we'll be talking about it again in the future. But I really want to thank you for all of your coverage and what you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. So I'm jumping in here now to wrap the episode. And I told you it would be a fascinating listen. What stands out to you? For me, I believe Roberta's letter may well be very significant, maybe even more so than the three confession letters, and that might be why Steve Bertolino has withheld it. Is it a sleight-of-hand strategy? That's what I'm wondering. I'm also curious about whether Brian called his mum and dad Roberta and Christopher Laundry between August the 27th and August the 31st. Did Brian confide in them and tell them what had happened? Did they help put a strategy in place with Brian? Also, when did his parents call Steve Bertolino and request advice and help? Was it before September the 1st? 
Now, I know that they paid Steve Bertolino a retainer on September the 2nd, one day after Brian Laundrie returned home on September the 1st. I really want to see those two other so-called confession letters. I want to analyse and compare them. And I can't help but wonder, were the letters part of a strategy put in place with the help of Brian's family and or possibly Steve Bertolino? Just how strategic were they? And what exactly did Roberta write to Brian in the letter in terms of an offer of assistance after Gabby went missing? Lots of thoughts are percolating for me right now, and I'm going to share with you where I've landed. But not just yet. There's more analytical work to be undertaken. I just wanted you to hear my reflections. And please do share yours with me too on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Crime Analyst, Twitter at The Crime Analyst, and TikTok at Crime Analyst Pod. Until next week, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.